This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. We know why God is placing Joseph in this situation, right? If you're familiar with the story. God knows something bad is coming. A famine is going to overtake the land. It's a famine that will wipe out the Egyptians and therefore will also wipe out the Israelites because the Israelites depend on the Egyptians for food supply. So God wants someone in charge who will listen to his voice, attune to his voice, so that God can give instructions on how to survive the famine so that the promise God made to Abraham will continue. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hey there, welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron. I'm thrilled to bring you a compelling sermon, Joseph and Jesus from the Origins series. The Bible is filled with ordinary people who faced great adversity, but found hope in God's promises. Today, we're exploring the captivating story of Joseph. In this message, Pastor Jeff talks about how God uses our troubles for the good of his will. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff as he begins in the book of Genesis, chapter 37, from verse 3. And so we're in this series called Origins, and but what we're really doing is trying to show you how the gospel story did not begin with Jesus, but with Abraham, even in Genesis chapter three. And so we're saying that God gives us through the Old Testament narratives what are called archetypes. And archetypes, the definition is actually an original that has been imitated. But I don't want you to think these are imposters. They're not. They're imitators foreshadowing the one, the champion who is to come. It's quite uncanny as you look at all the major stories of the Old Testament, how you see Jesus in every single one of them. Some more than others, and I've heard sermons that go a little bit too far. But as we look into their lives, the reason it's important to look into their lives is because we discover not only the work of God, what he plans on doing, but how he plans on doing it. And that, that clarifies so many things. And I'm not aware, I'm personally not aware of a more vivid picture or archetype in the Old Testament of Jesus than Joseph. Now, I know you've heard this story many times, but I discovered something you always do. Remember what I told you? You read the Bible. It's like a precious jewel. Depending on where you are in life and how the light reflects off of it, depending on what season of life you're in, you see different things. That's the beauty of the Word. So at this point in my life, even though I had read the story of Joseph, every time I read it, I discover something new. I discover something new in this story that I'm going to share with you at the end that I think makes all the difference in the world. And so... Joseph, a fantastic archetype. He's loved by his father. He's adored by his father. He's mistreated and he suffers immense injustice at the hands of his own people, his family. And here's the catch with Joseph. Every time he does the right thing, bad things happen. Every time he does the right thing, bad things, not every time, 99% of the time, he does the right thing and it doesn't lead uh, to ramifications that would be favorable. Like Jesus, Joseph is mistreated, he suffers injustice, he's rejected by his own, but also like Jesus, when it comes the time for retribution, to pay back those who have offended him, 
Here's what he says. Now, this is in Genesis 50, 19 through 21. Don't turn there. You stay in Genesis 37. But Joseph said to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, given the fact of what Joseph's brothers, and I'll get to that, did to him, this is remarkable. To grapple with all of this, let me go back now and read the text. Genesis 37, verse 3. Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Now, let me stop there just for a second. Yes, maybe Jacob loved Joseph because he had him in his old age. But if you know the Old Testament story, you also know that Joseph is the first son of Rachel. Remember, Jacob worked seven years and Uncle Laban snuck Leah in the tent when he was drunk. But the one he really loved was Rachel. He works another seven years, and the first child he has with Rachel is Joseph. You think that had anything to do with it? Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him, that is Joseph, more than any of them, they hated him, could not speak a kind word to him. Now, look at verse 5. Joseph doesn't exactly help himself. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brother, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed to them. Okay. And then verse eight, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, verse nine. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told this to his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, anybody else think Joseph needs an accountability partner to say, dude, some things you need to keep to yourself. Okay, you have a dream, but you don't have to tell everybody, especially when they hate you already. God has chosen you out of the goodness of his heart, not because you deserve it. Embrace it, but stay humble. But the fact is, Joseph is growing, and he's learning, and he's going to need the pit to prepare him for a palace. Now, let me go on and summarize the, uh, the story quickly. So the brothers of Joseph, they're eaten up with jealousy and bitterness, and so they decide one day we're out in the countryside to sell him to the passing Ishmaelites. They're going to sell their own brother into slavery to the enemy. So they killed their brother, so to speak, but made a killing at the same time. They got some money, some pieces of silver. But now they got a big problem because they got to tell dad. So they dip his coat, the coat of many colors, right? The beautiful coat that his father made him. They dip it in goat's blood and claim that a ferocious animal has devoured Joseph and here is the blood-stained coat to prove it. Well, Jacob, the father, tears his clothes and mourns because his favorite son is dead. And back in Egypt, we're told that Joseph is now sold to one of Pharaoh's officials, a very powerful man by the name of Potiphar. And we skip over this, nine years he's a servant and slave. Nine years in Potiphar's house. But because Potiphar sees something very special in Joseph, he puts Joseph in charge of Potiphar's, or his own household, his entire household. Finances, the travel schedule, the crops, the servants, the properties the food and water supply, everything. 
And as a result, Genesis 39, 5 says, the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Now, you and I have the privilege of retrospect. Now, listen carefully. We know why God is placing Joseph in this situation, right? If you're familiar with the story. God knows something bad is coming. A famine is going to overtake the land. It's a famine that will wipe out the Egyptians and therefore will also wipe out the Israelites because the Israelites depend on the Egyptians for food supply. So God wants someone in charge who will listen to his voice, attune to his voice, so that God can give instructions on how to survive the famine so that the promise God made to Abraham will continue. Otherwise... The Israelites aren't going to survive. Abraham's family will cease to exist. The lineage of the Messiah will be cut off. God's promises will fail. Now, let's stop there for a moment. You know, I'm thinking back when I was young. I just wish that my pastor would have asked these questions when I was younger. Here's a novel idea, God. Stop the famine. Send some water, some rain. Water the crops. Make the soil fertile. God, you could fix this in five minutes if you wanted to. Why does God seem so intent on going around the bout way? You know, why not just fix it right now? Why, why deal with so many moving parts? Joseph, Joseph's brothers, the palace, the pit, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar. All of that. There's too many things moving. There's action and reaction. Instead of trying to to, form, to bring everything together for good, all these evil things, why not just zap, send some rain, famine's over, Israel saved. You ever wondered that? I've wondered that about my own life. And the answer is because most of us don't understand the ultimate goal for our lives. Do you know what the goal of your life is? Not convenience. God's goal for your life is a deep, loving, trusting relationship with him. You move closer to God when moving through troubled times rather than avoiding troubled times. It's just the way it is. Is it God's fault that we're so hard-headed? If the ultimate goal of your life is relationship with God, you're not going to have that deep relationship with God if everything's so easy. You need trouble. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, shouts to us in our pain. I know C.S. Lewis was really, really smart. But can I say to you, I'm pretty sure that God's always shouting to us, but it often takes a knock on the head to clear out the wax that keeps us from hearing. When we have physical struggle, we spiritually thrive. But when we physically thrive, we tend to spiritually struggle. Because in times of plenty, you think you're in charge and you take full credit for all the good things. Ironically, when things are bad, you never blame yourself. You always blame God. So listen now, stay with me on this. Famine is coming. God is working all things together to save a remnant of his people, to continue his dream of reconciling all men back to himself, of restoring creation, and of completing the greatest story ever told. But tell me something. Do you think it looked that way to Joseph? Every time he does the right thing, something bad happens. Mrs. Potiphar sees that Joseph is well-built and handsome, a lot like Michael, right? So she sees a guy like Michael, and she makes her advances. 
Joseph does the right thing. And notice in the text, he says, how can I do this and sin against God? He doesn't say, how can I sin against Potiphar? How can I sin against Mrs. Potiphar? He says, how can I sin against God? Because all sin, whether it's against each other or not, is ultimately against God. Notice he doesn't rationalize like many of us would. Well, you know, if I sleep with this woman, she will give me favor and I will have even more power to help my people and bring God's plan to fruition. As if God needs our help. Abraham did that with Hagar. Look at what happened. So Joseph does the right thing, but he pays dearly for it. He runs away. She grabs his robe. He's running naked through the palace. I'm sorry, but every time I read this section, I think of Ray Stevens and the streak. And I was going to read it for you, but I don't have time. Those of you who are under 50 have no idea what I'm talking about. Go home and Spotify, Ray Stevens, The Streak, one of the funniest songs you'll ever hear. But you and I know that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. She accuses Joseph of being the aggressor, and Joseph's thrown into prison, and he's going to spend four years in prison in dungeon for doing the right thing. And the prisons of Egypt were not like our prisons, or at least most of them. No cable TV, no private Rooms, no libraries, educational centers. This is not going to be a pleasant experience. Abuse, disease, horrible conditions. In fact, what we know of the Egyptian prisons, you spent most of your time in darkness, underground, isolated. And yet, even in the prison, there's obviously some community because Joseph continues to do the good thing. And you have no hint in the scripture where Joseph would say, why me, God? Where are you? I did the right thing. What's wrong with you? Can't you help me? You could fix my life in five minutes if you wanted. And the Bible tells us that he's so good with the other prisoners that the warden gives him oversight over all the prison activities. He serves and loves his fellow prisoners in difficult circumstances. He's a light in the darkness. And he even begins interpreting their dreams so that he becomes known as the dream interpreter. And in Egypt, dreams were of important matters because they told you your future. In fact, stay with me, Genesis 40, the king's cupbearer and baker have fallen out of favor with the king and they end up in the same prison with Joseph. And then when they're in prison, both have dreams, but they're depressed because nobody can interpret them. Joseph finds out and he comes and he puts his arm around them and he says, do not all dreams belong to the Lord? Tell me your dreams. And so it's kind of humorous because the butler or the cupbearer, he says, I had a dream there was a vine and three branches and a cluster of grapes with Pharaoh's cup in my hand, I press these grapes up and down the clusters, these three branches into the cup of the king, and I put the cup into the king's hand. And Joseph said, well, the three branches are three days. In three days, you're going to be restored. You will once again place the cup in the king's hand. And then Joseph says, please, when you get before the king, remember me and tell him that I'm in this dungeon because of injustice. So you can imagine the baker hears this. Me, 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 me. My turn. Okay. I had a dream. Three white baskets were on my head. All kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh were in those baskets. And the birds came and ate out of the baskets. And Joseph said, the three baskets are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh's going to decapitate you. He's going to lift off your head. And the birds will come and eat your flesh. Man, if I'm the baker, I'm thinking, is there an alternative interpretation? Possible for, well, both of these events came, came to pass because three days later, it was Pharaoh's birthday party. And he restored the butler and he hanged the baker. But the butler did not remember Joseph. Joseph spent two more years in prison. Now again, you don't hear Joseph saying, God, come on, man. Can't you jog the butler's memory when he gets up there in the palace and get me out of this prison? I did the right thing. I'm in prison. And then you start to see in the narrative that the writer's telling us that God needed 
Joseph in the prison two more years. Oh, man. And the amazing thing is Joseph is growing because in all of this, he lives a godly life. He has amazing honesty and integrity. He serves his masters without complaint. Nowhere does he blame God for his circumstances. Nowhere does he become angry with God. In fact, he glorifies God in every circumstance. Instead of asking God to get him out of his trials, he asks God to come into his trials so that they can be used for grandiose purposes. And you know what? All this happens before Joseph's 30th birthday. He's learning this in his 20s. And sure enough, Two years later, by the way, let me just say something to you 20-somethings. Don't think for a moment. Don't let anybody, anybody belittle your youth. Your th- the thinking, the way you think right now and your goals and your dreams and all of that, this is when you're more open probably than any other time to the moving and the power of the Spirit in your life to do great things. Because you get older, you get cynical. Jump. When the conviction comes. Sure enough, two years later, the dream that changes everything, Pharaoh has two dreams, and all of a sudden we know that God needed the pit and the prison to prepare Joseph for the palace. Pharaoh has those two dreams, and you say, well, it's two years too late. No, God's always right on time. And Pharaoh sends for Joseph because the butler does remember Joseph because these are two important dreams. He remembers him at the right time. There is a holy man down in the prison who can interpret dreams. And Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh and says there are going to be seven years of abundance, seven years of famine. You've got to prepare during the abundance so that you can survive the years of famine. And Pharaoh's so impressed with Joseph that he puts in charge of all of Egypt. Imagine that. Joseph in charge, a Hebrew boy in charge of all of Egypt. Genesis 41, 42, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And so Joseph manages the economy through plenty and famine, and in doing so, you can see the archetype here, can't you? He saves the life of a nation. Without the plenty in Egypt, the Israelites would have become extinct. The gospel story would end right here. The seed of Abraham would be stifled. The lineage of the Messiah would cease, and you and I would be lost in our sins forever. Now, you did the hard work. I'm telling you that even though we can see this archetype in Joseph very easily, the the definitive part of this narrative is in verse 19 through 21 of Genesis 50, something I had not seen. Yes, Joseph has become the prince of Egypt. And you remember what happens when his brothers come back? They don't recognize him at first. And then later on, they recognize him and they know they're in big trouble. So do you remember what they do? They come back to Joseph on that final time and they say, "Uh, we got a message from dad. Dad says, be nice to us. That's what they basically say. Please forgive us. And the Bible says that Joseph wept. And that's when Joseph says this. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Do you realize, all right, I need you as best as you can to really concentrate and focus just these next few minutes, okay? Do you realize that what Joseph is saying is this? You did something bad. God saw it coming and redeemed it. You did something bad. God saw it coming and he turned it all together for good. Now, I know that 
You know, when we go to seminary, we study types of theology. There are all kinds of theological positions about how God works, the sovereignty of God, the free will of man. And as you study all of those, they're all interesting, some contradictory. But what I've begun to do in my older age is just go straight to the Bible. And I want to read something to you and tell you about two interesting Greek words that I hope, I hope will clarify some things for you. And it's a passage we're all familiar with. It's Romans 8, 28 and 29. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of a son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Okay, there are two Greek words here that are not the same. And that if Paul meant to say the same thing twice, he would use the same word. First, he says, there are those God foreknew. The Greek word is prognosko. Prognosko means that God is able to see every event that's ever gonna happen in your life. And of course he can. He's not limited by time and space. Now, that doesn't mean that he determines every event of your life. He just knows every event of your life. Your free will is still intact, but he knows ultimately the choices you're going to make, okay? And then he says, God foreknows all of this, and yes, does he know who's going to be saved and who's not? Well, yeah. Does he determine who? No. It's a totally different word. He knows over the course of your life, He knows all the things he's going to do and all the things you're going to do, and ultimately he knows, okay? But there's another word, proorizo, that means to determine beforehand, and that's the word translated predestined. What is it, though, that is predestined? Your salvation? No. Your sanctification. So God looks down. And he says, all right, I see Jeff Bynes' life. I stand outside of time and space. And I'm going to do to him what I do to everybody else. I'm going to reveal myself over the course of his life. But Jeff's going to receive me. So you know what I'm going to do? On that day that Jeff Bynes receives me into his life, boom, there's a process been in place. I'm going to breathe my Holy Spirit into him, and I'm going to make him like Jesus. Now, he may fight it, but it's predestined. Because if what I don't do here, I'll complete in eternity. You got it? You got it? Well, what does that mean for my life here and now? I'll tell you what it means. You can't mess up your life. All those bad things you did, God's going to redeem them all. On that moment that you receive Christ, he redeems all of it. How does he do that? Oh, man, he's really good at this. He's really good at this. All the pain, all the suffering, all the frustration, all the mistakes, he redeems it. And now he uses uniquely you uniquely you with all the baggage and everything you bring into it to help people who are like you, who are far from God, come near. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. You know what Joseph and Jesus have in common? Both were the object of the Father's special love. Both had promises of divine exaltation. Both were mocked by their families. Both were sold for pieces of silver. Both were stripped of their robes. Both embraced God's purposes, even though it brought intense physical harm. There's something else that Joseph and Jesus have in common. They had to go at it alone. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts.
by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.